The Battle of Waterloo took place in Belgium in 1815 between the French general Napoleon Bonaparte and an English allied army under the command of the Duke of Wellington. It was a great British victory and it spelled the end of Napoleon's hopes of ruling over Europe. Still today, if someone has been defeated or if they've had a downfall, we refer to that person as having met their Waterloo. But in the first few hours after the battle, the nation of England had a very different impression of the battle. These were the days before telephones or even telegrams, and the only way to communicate messages over long distances was via semaphore, flags that were waved from one lookout to another. And the story goes that when the first ship with news of the battle sailed into the English Channel, it immediately began to signal the lookout on the top of Winchester Cathedral. The first word came, Wellington. Then the second word, defeated. And at that point, a typical English fog rolled into the English Channel and the message stopped. And gloom and despair settled upon those in the cathedral and the surrounding area. Wellington defeated. But within a couple of hours, the fog lifted and the signal could continue. Wellington defeated the enemy. What a difference between those two messages. And I think that something very similar took place on that very first Easter weekend, that on that Friday afternoon, the message was clear. Jesus defeated, crucified, dead, and buried. But then early on that Resurrection Sunday morning, a very different message came to light. Jesus defeated sin and death and hell. We've heard a number of passages of Scripture already this morning, but the passage of Scripture I'd like to focus our attention on this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 to 24 and verses 51 to 58. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word. David Jenkins is a Church of England minister who was Bishop of Durham from 1984 to 1994, and he believed that Jesus didn't actually rise bodily from the grave, but rather rose spiritually in the minds and hearts of the disciples. He is famous, or rather infamous, for saying that the resurrection of Jesus was a conjuring trick with bones. Interestingly, three days after he was consecrated as bishop, the big cathedral in York was struck by lightning, leading to a devastating fire. And many people believe that that was an expression of God's feelings on the appointment of the new bishop. What difference would it make if David Jenkins were correct and Jesus did not actually rise from the dead? What difference would it make if on that first Sunday morning, Mary and the other woman went down to the tomb and found Jesus' body there, anointed it with spices, and then went back home again. What difference would it make? And the answer to that is, of course, all the difference in the world. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul describes the difference. In this passage, Paul speaks about both the reality of the resurrection and the results of the resurrection. Let's have a quick look. Firstly, the reality of the resurrection, verses 3 and 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Just notice here that Paul says Christ died. And he doesn't qualify that statement or try to back it up in any way, probably because for Paul and the early disciples, that fact was so obvious. But there are some people today who want to suggest that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, 
that he survived the crucifixion, that he was laid in a cool tomb, and that he later revived, came out of the tomb, and convinced the disciples that he had died and rose again. But as Paul says, Jesus died. He went through a Roman flogging, which alone was enough to kill most men. He hung on a cross for three hours, and he died. The Roman soldier who was in charge of the execution confirmed that he was dead. They thrust a spear through his side up into his heart. And John, who was an early witness, said that there was a sudden rush of blood and water. He wasn't a medical man, but any nurse would tell you that that was the separation of the serum from the blood, a clear sign that death had taken place. If Jesus had somehow survived all of that, he would have needed urgent medical attention. Josephus was an early Jewish historian who lived at the time of Jesus. And during the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in AD 70, three of his friends were crucified. And Josephus intervened on behalf of his friends. They were taken down from their crosses, given the best medical treatment that Rome could offer. And even with all of that, two of them died. Placing Jesus in a tomb without any medical attention would have finished him off, not revived him. His body was wrapped in cloths using 34 kilograms of spices. I guess he just breathed through all of that. Somehow he managed to unwrap himself. He had the presence of mind to carefully wrap up the grave clothes again. He managed to move the stone, which weighed as much as a small car, and frighten off a division of Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb. And then he staggered off into Jerusalem, appeared to his disciples, and said, Ha, I'm alive. I've conquered death. I don't think so. As Paul says, Jesus died and was buried. But then Paul goes on to make the startling statement, he was raised on the third day. And in verses 5 to 8, Paul outlines just some of the evidence for the reality of the resurrection. We don't have time to go through it all, and actually neither does Paul. He simply gives a long list of people who saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. I heard about a lawyer who was giving some advice to a younger colleague, and he said this, If I have a shaky case, I make a long speech. But if I have a very solid case, I don't say anything at all. I just call the eyewitnesses. And that's what Paul does in these verses. He doesn't give long philosophical or theological arguments to prove the resurrection of Jesus. He simply calls in the witnesses. And remember that Paul is writing just a few years after that first Easter Sunday. It may have been possible to falsify the evidence a hundred years after the event, but as Paul says in verse 6, most of these people are still living. Check it out for yourself. He says he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Folk, if there was one group of people who knew if Jesus were alive or not, then it was the disciples. They would have known if they'd stolen the body from the tomb, as the chief priests claimed. They would have known if they'd been involved in some sort of cover-up operation. They would have known deep in their hearts if there'd been a mix-up and they went to the wrong tomb. But every single one of those disciples said that Jesus was alive. And more than that, every single one of them, except John on the island of Patmos, died a martyr's death for saying that Jesus was alive. Those men were convinced that he was alive. They bet their lives on it. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. 
Some people suggest that the disciples simply dreamed that Jesus was alive or that they hallucinated out of hope. But dreams and hallucinations are very personal and individual events. You can't share a dream with someone else. Hallucinations are normally experienced by people who are on drugs or people who are deprived of food or water or sleep. And yet critics expect us to believe that 500 different people from all sorts of different backgrounds all experience the same hallucination all at the same time. I mean, here we have fishermen and doctors and tax collectors all experiencing the same hallucination. Tax collectors do not hallucinate. And then Paul gives a third piece of evidence in verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also. Paul's life changed. From wanting to wipe Christianity and Christians from the face of the earth, Paul went everywhere telling people of how Jesus had changed him. Lee Strobel, the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper, um, he, in 1979, much to his horror, discovered that his wife had become a Christian. And Lee decided to put an end to this nonsense. And so he decided to collect together all the evidence he could against Christianity and present it to his wife and persuade her to cease being a Christian. Unfortunately, that didn't go quite the way he expected. Let me read to you what happened. My wife, Leslie, stunned me in the summer of 1979 by announcing that she'd become a Christian. I rolled my eyes and braced for the worst, feeling like the victim of a scam. I'd married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie, and now I feared that she was going to turn into some sort of sexually repressed prude who would trade our upwardly mobile lifestyle for all-night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. Instead, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated, by the fundamental changes in her character, her integrity, and her personal confidence. Eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of what was prompting these subtle but significant shifts in my wife's attitudes. So I launched an all-out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity. Setting aside my self-interest and prejudices as best I could, I read books, interviewed experts, asked questions, analyzed history, explored archaeology, studied ancient literature, and for the first time in my life, picked apart the Bible verse by verse. I plunged into the case with more vigor than with any story I'd ever pursued. I applied the training I'd received at Yale Law School, as well as my experience as legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. And over time, the evidence of the world, of history, of science, of philosophy, of psychology, began to point toward the unthinkable. After a personal investigation that spanned more than 600 days and countless hours, my own verdict in the case for Christ was clear. So on November the 8th, 1981, I talked with God in a heartfelt and unedited prayer, admitting and turning from my wrongdoing and receiving the gift of forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus. Lee wrote a book about his experience and the evidence he uncovered. It's called The Case for Christ. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're unsure about the resurrection or the truth of Christianity, to check it out for yourself. One New Testament scholar summarizes the evidence for the resurrection like this. He says, 
No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism against the Christian witness that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. But Paul moves on from the reality of the resurrection to the results of the resurrection, what it means for us personally. And he does this by arguing negatively. Suppose it didn't happen. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says that the resurrection has huge implications for our faith our hope, and our love. Firstly, for our faith. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. But because Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, our faith is certain. We can trust Jesus. You see, on several occasions, Jesus predicted that he would die and yet rise again. Matthew 17, when they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Now, if the resurrection never took place, then that invalidates everything else that Jesus ever said. But because Jesus rose again, all his other claims, no matter how strange they seemed to be at the time, were also true. We can trust what he said. His claim to be the Son of God his claims to give us rest for our souls, his claim to give us life, life in all its fullness, his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, his promise that one day he will return, and in particular, his claim to be able to deal with our deepest need as human beings, our need to have our sins forgiven. Again, have a look at the negative side in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, we read that he took a cup of wine, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And by raising again from the dead, he proved that that was true. My sin is forgiven. Secondly, the resurrection has implications for hope. And hope in two senses. Uh, there is personal hope, particularly in the light of death. Woody Allen is a comedian and filmmaker whose one-liners are quite well known. Here are a couple. He said, I love nature. I just don't want to get any of it on me. If only God would give me some clear sign, like making a large deposit in my name at a Swiss bank. I'm very proud of my gold pocket watch. My grandfather on his deathbed sold me this watch. It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But in a more sober mood, Woody Allen once said this, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. Death is absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. And you know, Woody Allen would be 100% correct if Jesus was not raised from the dead. 
As Paul says in verses 17 and 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then there's that wonderful turning point in verse 20 where Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You will know that this is the picture that the New Testament writers consistently use to describe a believer's death. They call it falling asleep. For Jesus, raising someone from the dead is as simple as waking up your child on a morning. In fact, it's easier than waking up your child on a morning. And interestingly, the New Testament writers never once refer to Jesus as falling asleep. It always says that Jesus died. Believers fall asleep, but Jesus died. And the point seems clear. Jesus took the full brunt of death so that you and I will never die in that same way. All of the terror, all of the sting of death, which is sin, all of the God-forsakenness of death, Jesus took on himself so that as believers we may simply fall asleep in him and wake up in his presence. So there's personal hope, but second, there's also universal hope. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. There is hope that one day the universe will be restored. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell once wrote this, no heroism No intensity of thought and feeling can preserve individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. That is not the biblical picture. In the final book of the Bible, we read, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And so we are completely safe in God's world. We know for certain that nothing, neither trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then finally, the resurrection of Jesus has implications for our love. As Christians, we begin our Christian life at the foot of the cross, but we must never think that we then leave the cross as we go on in our Christian lives. As we saw on Friday, the cross shapes the rest of our lives as Christians. Because in love, Jesus laid down his life for us, so we too lay down our lives for others in sacrificial love. Paul's intention in this passage is not just to give us a nice warm feeling about the resurrection. He ends this passage with a call to action, verse 58. 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul has just spoken about the fact that one day Jesus will return and sort everything out. But he doesn't say, therefore, relax. Everything is going to be sorted out. Just wait for his return. He calls us to work. And our work in the world is the work of love. And notice that the work of love that we do here and now lasts into eternity. J.B. Phillips translates verse 58 in this way. Nothing you do for him is ever lost or wasted. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, these three remain, last, endure, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Our love for one another, our love for the world, is never wasted. Leading a Bible study, chatting to someone at work about God, forgiving someone who has wronged us, serving coffee after the service, overcoming a bad habit with God's help, offering someone a lift, playing a musical instrument, operating the sound desk. It all counts. What we do here and now will continue on into eternity. So just these few things from today's passage. We celebrate today the sure and certain reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And we also celebrate the sure and certain results of the resurrection. My faith is certain. My sin is forgiven. I have hope, even in the most darkest circumstances, both for myself and for our world. And even the smallest act of love is not wasted. Amen.